Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And this is a bonus episode of The Pillar Podcast. In this bonus episode, we are joined for a conversation by Bishop Thomas Paprocki. Bishop Paprocki is the Bishop of Springfield in Illinois, a canon lawyer, a civil lawyer, the incoming chair of the U.S. Bishops' Conference Committee on Canonical Affairs and Church Governance, and also the author of an essay published today, February 28th, in First Things Magazine, entitled Imagining a Heretical Cardinal, in which Bishop Paprocki um, raises the question of whether um, certain statements by bishops, by cardinals rather, both in the United States and um, in Europe, constitute heresy, and if so, how the Church will respond to that. Um, Bishop Paprocki has uh, been kind enough to join us today. I should note that um, one of the cardinals whom Bishop Paprocki raises questions about, uh, in fact, one of the cardinals whose statements Bishop Paprocki says constitute material heresy, um, is Cardinal Robert McElroy of the Diocese of San Diego in California. We have contacted Bishop McElroy um, over the past couple of weeks after the publication of a controversial essay that Bishop Paprocki cites asking for an interview. Uh, we have contacted Cardinal McElroy twice um, today asking for an interview. The Cardinal has not yet responded to our request for an interview, but I should mention that we have made an effort to speak with Cardinal McElroy about this issue as well. Uh, and now um, please uh, join me and Bishop Paprocki and Ed for a conversation about uh, his recent essay. Ed, do you want to get started? Sure. Um, I, so I guess my first question is, can you... Give us a little bit of background on how you arrived at the decision to write the essay that you wrote, because, um, you know, you've you've couched it in sort of hypothetical terms, but it, it's fairly clearly zeroed in on a, on one contribution in particular and a few other contributions by cardinals in recent weeks. And you you cite heresy and specifically the canonical delict of heresy. And, and I wonder if you could unpack a little bit for us how you came to the conclusion that it was necessary to apply that canonical rationale to this situation? Well, when I teach uh, canon law, as I've been doing for many years, I've always uh, stressed the maxim that law follows theology. So uh, by that, I I mean that uh, we canonists don't just sit down and uh, make up canon laws out of the blue. Um, uh, uh, They follow the theological teachings. So uh, for, for example, uh, the teaching that I mentioned in the article about Eucharistic coherence, I mean, that's not just canon lawyers sitting down making that up. That's something that, uh, as I quoted, it's from Scripture there and then the teaching of the church. Uh, and so, you know, we do start with the theological, and, and there have been a number of articles written on the theological aspects of these issues that I mentioned but as a canonist, then I always uh, go to the next step, which what, what are the, the canonical implications of this? And um, as you point out in, in, in your pillar post today, uh, this is probably the first time we've used that word uh, heresy publicly. I have heard that word used privately. And since, since it's been coming up in some private conversations, I thought perhaps it's time for us to have some public discussion uh, about that, because if there are not just bishops, but if there are theologians and other faithful Catholics who are raising the question of heresy, well, then I, I thought I would explore what are some of the canonical uh, implications. Uh, indeed, if you if you have a situation of a cardinal who is uh, holding to heretical views or publicly proclaiming and teaching heretical views. 
Mm. What, so one of the things that strikes me when dealing with the the canonical delict of heresy as it's defined in the law is is of course it's you know we you you just mentioned that this is the first time we've heard heresy being discussed in this way at least publicly, and I think we do often talk about and here discussed departures from church teaching or people who make arguments that aren't in accord with the teaching of the church. But heresy is a particular word because. Mm-hmm. Um, according to its canonical definition, it, it touches on a credenda teaching specifically. And and I wanted to ask you, what what is the credenda teaching that you, you feel is particularly being um, denied or, or doubted in this context? Well, I mentioned a couple of different um, situations in my article, and that's uh, uh, also why I didn't mention any names in here. So, uh, the first situation is a, a quote from uh, an American cardinal, as you surmised. But the second situation, I said, what if a cardinal of the Catholic Church were to state publicly that homosexual acts are not sinful and same-sex unions should be blessed by the church? Uh, I, I'm thinking more of the uh, European situation in mind with that scenario. And so I, I didn't also intend this to be um, taken as as a, an accusation against anyone in particular. I didn't mention names because I didn't want this to focus on um, a, a sort of a personal debate uh, or or a, a feud between uh, bishops. Uh, I wanted to focus on the issues that were being brought up here. And I also meant this, as I said, not, not, not as an accusation, but more of a rhetorical question. That's why I started out with imagine if uh, or what if. So it is uh, in that sense... Um, not exactly a hypothetical because these are references to some recent statements, but I think I intended the discussion to be more rhetorical. So in that regard, I mean, looking at the the situations that I mentioned, uh, and then I I try to give um, some definitions uh, that I, I would hope would be helpful. So when we we talk about uh, Heresy, for example, it's, it's defined in canon law as uh, as some obstinate denial, uh, obstinate uh, doubt of uh, some truth that it is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. Well, something to be believed by divine and Catholic faith, uh, that would be something that's in Scripture and something that's been defined in the teachings of the Church uh, over the centuries. And I think in the two cases that I've cited there in terms of Eucharistic coherence, uh, that has been the teaching of the church as found in the Bible, the, the word of God, from the earliest days of the church. And so for the suggestion to be made now that maybe some of these sexual sins, uh, not just sexual sins, but uh, uh, other sins, like not going to Mass on Sunday, these are these are, are not necessarily uh, that serious. And so... Um, you know, anybody can go to communion. You don't have to worry about uh, whether or not uh, you have committed a mortal sin. And that's that's just not been the teaching of the church for the, for 2000 years. And uh, so that's a pretty significant denial in, in a sense of what the church is teaching in that regard. And then in terms of, of marriage, that, too, is a rather novel expression being put forth that, uh, you know, homosexual acts uh, are, are not new. <laughs> in the history of humanity, but to argue that these are not sinful, and in fact, that they should be blessed in some kind of a ceremony, uh, that is just contrary to, uh, I think it's not just, that's not just a disciplinary matter that goes to the heart of our teachings, our doctrine about the sacrament of matrimony, 
again, as revealed in scripture and the book of Genesis, God created them male and female. And uh, so I, I think you, the, these are touching on matters uh, that to, when you when someone is, is speaking contrary to them, you are basically denying some uh, some of the divine truths uh, that have been held by the church uh, and taught by the church for two millennia. You know, you mentioned um, some obstinate denial or obstinate doubt of of a truth to be def- to be believed with um, divine and Catholic faith. This level of credenda teaching, in, the code then subsequently defines a secondary um, disciplinary norm that says, you know, not punishable by excommunication, but by some other penalty. The same kind of doubt or denial of a of a truth that is to be held with divine and Catholic teaching, what we call tenenda teaching, sort of um, truths which we're no less obligated to hold as Catholics, but they are, if you like, one step removed. They're derived from a truth that is to be believed with divine and Catholic faith. And while we don't have a, a taxative list of credenda teachings, we have some idea of what they are from, you know, from the Vatican, from doctoral documents and things like that, the articles of the creed. Um, do you see there being a sort of gray area on some of the issues that we're talking about here between when there are credenda teachings that are being doubted or denied and when they are tenenda teachings? Or do you think this is very much on the side of the line that is credenda? Well, that's a very good question. As you point out, we don't have a taxative list of those. And so uh, the uh, canon that I cited there, Canon 750, with the uh, additions that were made by Pope John Paul II in 1998. So you've got those things that must be believed with the divine and Catholic faith, uh, such as those that are contained in the Word of God and Scripture, uh, handed down the deposit of faith. But then John Paul II added added these categories uh, of things definitively set uh, forth by the magisterium of the church. Uh, those things are uh, required for the holy keeping and faithful exposition of, of the deposit of faith, uh, and those things which are to be definitively held. So, um, you know, it, it, we've got these different categories, and uh, as as we mentioned, there's no taxative list. So I mean, that's part of also um, my hope maybe in starting a conversation with this. I'm, I mean, I'm raising some issues that I'm suggesting may be heretical. Uh, maybe people disagree with that. Maybe they say, well, these these are not necessarily, I mean, they're teachings that are contrary to what the Catholic Church has taught, but are do they do they rise to the level of something that uh, um, would uh, invoke automatic uh, excommunication? And that's the other thing about, about heresy here, too, is that it's, it's interesting, heresy, apostasy, and schism that allow for the possibility of a latte sententia excommunication um, and my my take on that, uh, the way I've always understood that is because, uh, in effect, if you are a heretic, an apostate, or a schismatic, you have put yourself outside the church, and, and you can do that without a public act. Now, I, I make references to some, some public statements here, but a person could very well be a heretic without uh, ever making a public statement about that. Uh, because in their own heart and in their conscience, they say, "I reject what the Catholic Church teaches." Well, this is, a, um, this is part of the of the code. Actually, is that it has to be the the right. thing has to be manifested and perceived by someone for it to be a crime, as it were. Well, for it to be uh, a declared crime, I mean, so a latte sententia uh, excommunication—that's a crime, but it's an automatic crime in a sense. I mean, uh, you're right in in terms of a, a bishop. Uh, or or some uh, competent ecclesiastical authority 
uh, declaring it, there would have to be some some uh, something public and manifest about that. But I, what I'm suggesting is that you can commit the crime of heresy without any public act. And that's why it's latte sententia. It, it seems to me, Excellency, that when we come to this question of the precise subject matter that might be heresy um, that pertains to a credential teaching, it seems to me that the argument that you have made, at least with regard to this question about sort of matrices for Eucharistic worthiness or calls against the notion of worthiness for for Eucharistic reception, you effectively juxtapose that against St. Paul in, in um, I think it's 1 Corinthians to sort of say, well, this is revealed to us in the Word of God and therefore... To repudiate what St. Paul says in the Word of God is to is to deny something which is to be believed. Am I am I understanding that right? Yes, I, I think if it's in the Bible, I mean it, that something to be held as uh, divinely uh, taught. If it's in the Bible, we say the Bible is the Word of God. So I mean, if you're basically saying, well, St. Paul was wrong, and we shouldn't follow St. Paul, uh, I don't know. That suggests to me a rejection of something that's uh, taught in the Word of God. How do you think canonically? Um, we would get from where we are to uh, a declared penalty. And by that, I don't mean sort of the precise political circumstances of the moment. I mean, is there obstinacy on these things or would there have to be some um, obstinacy triggering event before a penalty might be declared? Well, in in terms of declaring a penalty, yes, I I think you'd have to have uh, some kind of a warning that would go to that person and say, look, you've you've said this publicly. Uh, uh, This uh, appears to be heretical. Do you, uh, can you clarify what you mean by that? Uh, and so I think there'd be an opportunity, and and that's how I end my essay with uh, with the hope that the Holy Spirit would would guide uh, such a cardinal uh, to retract whatever it is that he's saying that that would be heretical. Uh, so I, I end on the note that I, I I hope we wouldn't have a situation of a heretical cardinal uh, voting in a conclave. But uh, yeah, yeah, in terms of declaring a, p- a penalty, that's that's uh, an, another matter. So I mean. And that scenario that I suggest, uh, when I'm saying a heretical cardinal, I'm talking about a latte sententia. So a cardinal that in his heart uh, is a heretic and he knows he's a heretic, but he doesn't tell anybody. <laughs> I mean, you, I don't know. That, that situation may have occurred over the last 2,000 years. At times we don't know. Maybe a, a cardinal in, in his own heart is an apostate. Maybe he's abandoned the faith, but has never told anyone um, because he, he just... He, doesn't want want that to be known, so he keeps that private uh, in his heart. I'd say he's excommunicated. Now, does that invalidate his vote? No, um, he's still a, a cardinal uh, in good standing. It's a, it's unfortunate then if you would have an apostate, for example, voting in a papal conclave. But uh, I could imagine that scenario also having already happened, perhaps in the last two thousand years. I, I guess the next thing I wanted to ask you, Bishop, is this: is you you talked about being able to envision this having happened perhaps in the past in the last 2000 years and i think you're probably right i mean we've had points in the church's history where i think probably if not a majority at least a, a sizable minority of the bishops of europe for example were arians of one stripe or another mm-hmm. um so so in a sense episcopal heresy is nothing new in the in the history of the church but do you think um, it seems to me that these kinds of doctrinal debates that are flaring up amongst the bishops, not just in the United States, but um, around the world, and perhaps uh, you know they're being thrown into sharper relief by the synodal process and things as people are a little more forthright with their views, and different topics get brought in. Do you think there's a more general debate going on now about the nature of church teaching, about the nature of doctrine, about what is and is not mutable, what is and is not 
the things that we believe and have to believe with divine and Catholic faith versus those things which are sort of merely ecclesiastical norms or teachings that that are there to be played with? Is this all part of a wider, do you think, conversation in the church right now? Uh, yes, I, I do think it is, uh, because I think what we're seeing is not, not just those uh, couple of scenarios that I put forth in my essay, but I mean, we are seeing that in the in the synodal process of um, views being put forth that are clearly contrary to the uh, teachings of the church and that have been corrected by uh, the Holy See and by the Pope Francis himself, uh, who has called, for example, uh, for the German uh, synodal path to uh, remain faithful to the teachings of the church. And and uh, they seem to be disregarded. You know, so you've got. A very clear statements coming from from uh, the Holy See calling that the German synodal path to task, and then statements coming out that basically kind of um, dismiss what the Holy See has said. So I, I think that what's raised in my mind, and I think in others as well. Uh, well, what happens? What happens then? You know, if you have people that are are basically rejecting what the Church teaches. And they're going ahead and claiming that they can do these things and still be in good standing in the church. So, I mean, we, we've we seen in, in the past and in, in history and going to Germany, of course, with Martin Luther uh, and, and the path that he took uh, wound up with the Protestant revolt. And uh, I'm I'm hoping and praying that doesn't happen again. But even Pope Francis has said we already have a Protestant church in Germany. We don't need another one. You know, so if Martin Luther went down a path that led him into what people clearly called heresy at the time, I know heresy is a word that, uh, at least since the Second Vatican Council, nobody likes to use it. Uh, we, we use other expressions uh, like not being in full communion or a separated brethren, uh, and that's all good and that's very polite. Uh, but sometimes when you get down to, uh, well, why are, why are they separated or why are they not in full communion? Be- because they're holding views that are either heretical or uh, they're in apostasy or they're sch- schismatic. Bishop, there are people who have asked um, today, I mean, even reached out to us to ask, even people who I think would agree with your argument have asked about the sort of propriety of engaging in this debate in the public square, asking would it have been more appropriate for Bishop Paprocki to go to these cardinals directly or to go to the Holy See? And perhaps, indeed, you have. I mean, perhaps that's been part of the process that led you to this point. But I wonder if you might comment on that question about sort of the public nature of this debate. Yeah, that's that's a good question, you know, and I've, I've gone back and forth uh, uh, in my own mind. I was part of um, uh, the group of 100 and some bishops that wrote to uh, the bishops in Germany. Uh, and so we have made some efforts uh, to address uh, these matters. Um, and again, that was pretty much dismissed uh, by the bishops in Germany who uh, to whom we addressed that letter. So I, I think uh, the, the reason I did this is because I, this debate has become so public at this point that uh, it seems to have passed beyond uh, the point of just some private conversations between bishops. Uh, so the positions that are being put forth are being put forth very publicly. And uh, when efforts are made to to try to correct those and, and those efforts are dismissed, you reach a point of frustration and saying, well, okay, and, and if they're not being heeded, these calls for uh, being faithful to the teaching of the church, if they're not being heeded, well, then then maybe it's time to at least say something publicly or raise the issue for public conversation. Mm-hmm. 
I guess realistically, what, one of the things I wonder is sort of not what you sort of hope might happen from here, but realistically, how do you see this playing out? What are the what are the next things that happen subsequent to your essay, which I really do think is, um, as I indicated this morning, kind of a, a significant, very significant moment. What, what happens next? Well, I would hope that uh, that those who have uh, proposed some teachings that are are not in conformity with what the church has taught for the past 2000 years or what we find in the word of God, that they would clarify their uh, what they're trying to say and affirm uh, what the church uh, does teach uh, and that they would have the integrity to do that uh, instead of uh, putting things out there and uh, sort of trying to trying to push the envelope, so to speak. Uh, You know, so I think that's part of also what happens kind of naturally is you get people that that push issues until uh, what at one point seemed extreme becomes more acceptable. And, you know, then people just sort of say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, and, and so well, where do you draw the line uh, in, in terms of, uh, okay, somebody's suggesting something that um, doesn't seem proper and you kind of let that go. And then they suggest something else that's even worse and you let that go. And it just, it, it uh, escalates kind of readjusting the Overton window, the window of what seems plausible or, or right. realistic. Yeah. Okay. Right. That analogy or, or mo- shifting the 50 yard line is another analogy people use. Um, Excellency expressing as you did the hope that um, bishops or cardinals that are proposing these teachings that you, you mentioned in your essay, hoping that they will clarify and, um, you know, articulate better the, the, the teaching of the church. It's, it's a noble hope certainly an understandable one, but not to be too blunt, but do you think it's a reasonable expectation? Because it strikes me that the people who who have made these arguments, I mean, you, again, you went out of your way not to name names in your in your piece, but you did quote from Cardinal McElroy's recent essay in America Magazine, and he has made numerous public appearances since then and, you know, mm-hmm. reiterated what he what he said and argued in that. So expecting him to to uh, to revisit that line of thought strikes me as perhaps unlikely. I, do you do you think that the more likely result of your essay is that it's going to be um, a point of further argumentation? Do you not think that um, this is going to, and I'm not suggesting that you wrote it with a divisive frame of mind by any means, it's certainly not what we've been talking about, but do you not think this is going to lead to further and more personal back and forth between the bishops who, it seems clear to me, don't always believe the same things? Well, I, to some extent, I think that back and forth, uh, as far as unpleasant as it may, may be, uh, may be necessary uh, to do in terms of bringing some clarification. The, the Arian heresy, for example, that you mentioned earlier, if some bishops didn't push back on that, we'd be Arians today. <laughs> Because they, you know, if they thought, well, we don't, we don't want to, we don't want a public disagreement and have, you know, any um, lack of unity being seen here. So, you know, when when the Arian heresy is being promoted, if, if the bishops who were trying were, were staying true to the teaching of the church kept kept just kept quiet, we wouldn't be where we are today in terms of having the clarification about that. And so there there have been times in the history of church of the church of some pretty uh, fierce debates about what the, the church teaches about the divinity of Christ, for example, uh, and, and, uh, and, or the, and, or the humanity of Christ, uh, that, uh, whichever side of the heresy they're on today, the, the, the big conversation, uh, and focus seems to be on matters of sexuality and marriage. Uh, 
this is not just in secular culture, but it's, you know, we, we live in a culture. And so the secular culture even permeates in, into the church. And, and so if we don't say something, well, then eventually kind of seeps in and, and becomes, as we were saying earlier, just becomes something that's kind of accepted. I, I would hope that in the course of, of the debate that there would be some clarification. And I, I'm always hopeful, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, Cardinal McElroy, for example, uh, he did walk back some of what he said in his first essay in America. There was a uh, a subsequent um, podcast that uh, he did on the uh, on the, uh, the Jesuitical uh, site, as they call it, of America magazine, where he uh, he walked back what he because he, he seemed to be saying that all the baptized should be able to go to communion, and uh, and he clarified that he was um, he didn't mean. Uh, not baptized Christians, yeah, yeah, not all the baptized. Uh, so, I mean, he 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 did clarify something. So, I I, I wouldn't uh, necessarily uh, give up hope and say, well, you know, he's. I don't know that he's necessarily that dug into a position that if he's challenged on it, that perhaps would say, uh, you know, well, maybe I didn't. As I've said myself, sometimes maybe I didn't express myself very clearly. Let me try to rephrase that. Bishop, you know, Rome, we, we're, we've been talking a little bit about the German Synodal Path, and the Holy See has weighed in on um, elements of the German Synodal Path now about 500 times, and um, with, with very little result, but they keep at it. Do you think that the Holy See will be more likely to weigh in on this kind of burgeoning debate among the American bishops about matters of sexual morality? And if so, I mean, do you think the Holy See, you've mentioned that Pope Francis's magisterial teaching, but if the Holy See does weigh in, do you think the Holy See will be with you? Well, I, I would hope so, since I'm talking about the teachings of the church and uh, the things the church has taught for 2000 years. Uh, you know, I, Pope Francis uh, has made some statements, if they were quoted accurately, about, uh, I think, on one of his airplane uh, interviews about, uh, you know, he just wants to let people talk and all kinds of different opinions are put out there. And then uh, if they've gone too far, it would be his uh, role to say no, you've gone too far, and that's that's good. And I, I would hope he would do that if it uh, reaches that point. I, I don't know if that's what his intention is with the German synodal way, for example. Why, why, uh, despite the, um, the the warnings and cautions that have come from the Holy See, that uh, they continue to go down the path that they are. Uh, so I don't know if his intention is okay. Well, once they vote on everything, then. Sort of what he did with, with the Amazonian Senate, in a sense, too, where there were calls there for married priests and uh, women priests. And, and he basically said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, so I, w- I would hope that, uh, you know, the situations w- uh, where they do go too far, that the, the Holy Father would say, no, we've gone too far. You can't do that. The difficulty with that approach, as I would say, is I, I remember some years ago when I was chancellor in the Archdiocese of Chicago. And as, as chancellor, I was the one who was uh, sort of the enforcer for canon law in some ways. And uh, and we were trying to enforce a, a particular issue. Well, it was it was general absolution that was pretty widespread at that time. And uh, Cardinal Bernadine uh, was making it clear that uh, general absolution can only be done under very limited circumstances. And as his chancellor, I had to call, kind of call some pastors to task on that. And one of the, one pastor said to me, uh, you're trying to put uh, the toothpaste back in the tube. <laughs> it's like once it's out of the tube, it's kind of hard to put back in the tube. And and so I remember that analogy. So it's like, uh, all right, uh, that's the problem. If you, if you let the toothpaste spill all over outside of the tube, how do you get it back in? 
So I think to uh, our, our task as as uh, successors of the apostles and shepherds of the flock is is to try to prevent things from getting to such a state that they cannot be rectified. Yeah. Can you place the debate that the U.S. bishops are having right now in the context of the history of the American church? Have there is this as is this as sharp of debate as as has been had among the American bishops? I mean, I really don't know much about the deliberations of the Baltimore councils, for example. But do you think this is a unique moment, or it's just uniquely public? Well, and to some extent, probably uniquely public because I mean, you didn't have social media and the instant communications uh, uh, that we have now. In fact, I. Uh, I uh, re- received an email about the first things article before I even knew that it was out <laughs> this morning. <laughs> so I mean, they told me it was going to be out today, and I said, "Please send me a link uh, when when you get it." And uh, I got an email before I got the link. So, <laughs> so I mean, that's how instantaneous things are now. And I'm I'm getting emails, you know, from all kinds of people, uh, you know, that uh, that off- I I don't normally have regular contact with. So you know, in that in that sense. Uh, the communication is so instantaneous. So, I mean, that, that, that perhaps makes it feel like the debates are more heightened than they used to be. But, I mean, I think that there were certainly, I wasn't a bishop at the at the time, but uh, well, when Humana Vitae first came out and all those debates going on uh, about contraception, I think those were some, some pretty intense debates in the church. And uh, if you go back to the First Vatican Council, uh, lots of debates about the uh, papal infallibility and some bishops walking out of the council because they rather than vote against it they would just rather be absent you know so that that's pretty dramatic when you have bishops leaving a council because they don't agree with what's being proposed you talk about bishops walking out of the council what about a conference um you know the the bishops are scheduled to meet again in june and I think we've we we grew used to a sort of new style of doing things over the last couple of meetings, at least watching from the from the sort of front row of the outside, as it were, where we were, and um, things appearing a little more fraternal. The bishops seemed uh, more decided to hold their their frank exchanges of views in private, in executive session, and things. Um, if if bishops are as as they have been, and it's by no means you know limited to you uh, or or Cardinal McElroy or anyone else for that matter, it seems to be a, a sort of growing practice that bishops and cardinals um, in the USCCB release lengthy articles, essays, uh, things like that, and and often sharply disagreeing with one another. Is do you, do you think this sort of debate has to then spill over into how the conference meets and how the bishops talk about things? among themselves, both in executive session and in public when they meet? I mean, is this, can we hope to see sort of this conversation turn into a rather more formalized dialogue? Or or do you think this is going to sort of just be a question of bishops, if you like, communicating through letters to the editor in different publications? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the um, practice of, of having more extended executive sessions is rather recent. It's only the last few years that we've been doing that. So, uh, I've been a bishop now since 2003, and for most of that time, you know, most of our discussions were being held with in, in public session. And uh, I think it is with the more recent times that some of these uh, issues have, beca- because of the polemics involved with them, the hope that, well, maybe the more uh, sharp uh, debates or discussion would be, be held in pri- private and try to work some of those things out. But uh, the reality is, I think... Uh, 
uh, again, just with uh, uh, the, the situation being what it is with with, uh, you know, when when you make a, a statement, uh, I, sometimes even the, the articles that I write in my my col- my column for our Catholic paper, uh, what I have in mind, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of my my people in the diocese of Springfield in Illinois. And sometimes I'm thinking, well, those are the only people that are going to see this. And then I forget that, you know, my 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 columns are on on the Internet and I do a video recording of the columns. And so anything I say is not just directed to the people in central Illinois, but it's going to be heard around the world. And so uh, that's a new phenomenon, too, that uh, sometimes when we think we're speaking locally and in the past, you know, when when someone did speak locally, if you give a, gave a homily, um in your, your church or your cathedral the only people who heard it were the ones who were there well now since covid we're live streaming our masses so um you know it's it's just just that's just part of the reality i think is that uh the whole world is much more on a public stage now than it used to be do you think with the with this kind of debate that's been going on now which um you contributed to today but between McElroy and bishops who have been responding to him and and, and certainly you're part of that and there have been others as well, as Ed alluded to, and you kind of confirmed. Do you think in light of that and in light of just um, how polemical the Eucharistic coherence document was, that there will be a distaste or disinterest in trying to do things collaboratively as a conference? I mean, do you think this will sort of um, limit to some degree the kinds of projects the conference tries to take on or the kind of teaching the conference tries to do? Well, I think we're seeing some of that already, for example, with the document on uh, uh, faithful citizenship. I, th- there, I think there's been a reluctance there to revisit that document because uh, even when that passed uh, a few years ago, uh, it was not easy getting to that consensus. And I think there's some uh, some concern about reopening that the conversation to try to come up with a brand new document. Uh, can can we reach a similar consensus as we we did then? That's so. That's part of it. Uh, the other part of it is the reality that I think a lot of us are recognizing that we come out, we spend a lot of time and hours on these long documents, even like the Eucharistic coherence document, and then how many people actually uh, read the whole documents. You know, they get the snippets from the news, uh, and uh, so I think there's been more of an effort to uh, to use uh, video, use media uh, that are more easily accessible uh, uh, to people. Well, you mentioned, uh, it's funny, you mentioned that the conference has a sort of history and a standard way of operating, of producing these long documents that perhaps not all, not as many Catholics read in their entirety as the conference would like when they're drafting them. But it it strikes me that I think quite a lot of Catholics do pay attention to the debates that are had and the forming Mm -hmm. of them. And they often, I think, learn more, not just about what the church teaches, but about what their bishops believe through that process of back and forth, whether it's sort of on on the conference hall floor or in articles and publications and things like that. And I mean, is this a question of the conference having to to learn that really um, maybe dialogue is the most effective means of communication they have, dialogue with each other, whether it's, you know, fraternal dialogue or sometimes sort of fractious dialogue, but is that not emerging as sort of the way in which the message gets through loudest? Well, that is a good point. I mean, even even in the uh, as a sphere of civil government, uh, when a law is passed, there's long debates that go on in the Congress or in, leg- in the legislature, and that becomes part of what they call the legislative history. You know, so when you're trying to uh, uh, sometimes when you have a court case uh, debating 
uh, or challenging what a particular law says, they go back to the legislative history. Well, what did the uh, sponsors of the bill say that this bill was intended to do? So you're right, uh, Ed, in saying that, you know, the conversations themselves among the bishops are are very helpful uh, as teaching moments uh, for the faithful. And that's why, too, I, I think uh, the the public debates are are helpful in that regard. I don't want to say do away with the with the executive sessions because I think both of them are helpful. It's it's good for us uh, bishops at times uh, just to be able to talk to each other and not be thinking about you know this is on camera and how is this going to be taken by someone who who doesn't really understand maybe the theological underpinnings of what I'm trying to say here. So those those executive sessions I think are helpful in that regard. On the other hand, I, it's probably not helpful in terms of what you're suggesting and teaching the people. If if we were to work everything out in in, in executive session and we come back into public session and we we just we just call for the vote and and suddenly it's vote it's voted on and we've approved it because we've worked everything out in private and then people will say, well, what you know, how did that happen and what's what's behind all this? So I think to some extent the public uh, debates are helpful. Uh, and and that would be my my hope here is that uh, again I, I did did not mean this as uh, an accusatory kind of a thing, um, but more in terms of a discussion of uh, of raising some issues and hopefully having a civil uh, debate about these issues and then coming to some clearer understanding of uh, uh, of what the church teaches and what we as bishops are supposed to be teaching. Uh, on that point, Bishop, and this is my final question. You talk about the the good uh, that it is good for bishops to talk with each other, and I think that's true. Do you are, are you anticipating that you you will have some follow up conversations, theological conversations, or otherwise with Cardinal McElroy? Is that something you would hope for to kind of be able to talk through some of these specific theological issues, the core ad core, as it were? I would certainly be open to that. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily. Um want to make myself the expert in this in terms of, uh, you know, I'm, um, I'm going to be the final word on, on this. I'm not, uh, I have, I have a voice in this and I'm, so I'm expressing my voice. Uh, I, I'm always open to speaking with a, a brother Bishop about this. And I would, I would certainly welcome those kinds of conversations with, uh, Cardinal McElroy or, or, or any other Bishop. Thank you, Bishop Paprocki, for being with us. Thank you for having this conversation. Again, Pillar listeners, I should mention that we have reached out to Cardinal Robert McElroy both today and over the past couple of weeks asking him for an interview for his perspective on these things. Uh, the Cardinal has not yet responded to our request for an interview. Uh, this episode, this bonus episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the subscribers of PillarCatholic.com and Pillar Media. If you want to support our great reported journalism, our analysis, our interviews, our podcast, interview podcasts, bonus episodes like this one, go to PillarCatholic.com and press subscribe. That is how it happens. We depend on our subscribers to do the journalism that we do. Again, Bishop Abraki, thank you for joining us. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media, an Ed and JD production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back later this week with a full regular episode of The Pillar Podcast. Adios. Adios.